Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of the Environmental Protection Information Center, or as we are better known in this part of the country, EPIC. And I am joined by my friend and co-worker, Jen Colt, Director of Humble Baykeeper. Hey, Jen. Hey, Tom. And we are also joined by the Kelp Restoration Coordinator at the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, James Ray. Hey, James. Hey, nice to see you both. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to be talking about kelp and kelp restoration here on the North Coast. So let's let's talk a little bit about you first. Can you tell us about your, your day-to-day work at the California Department of Fish and Wildlife? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is James Ray, and Senior Environmental Scientist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife's Marine Region. I spend my time working with my colleagues on kelp management and restoration issues. And so that primarily means canopy forming kelps throughout the state, which is giant kelp and bull kelp here on the North Coast. But also some of my colleagues work on other algal species as well. And so that includes harvest management, but it also includes developing strategies and ways to try and recover kelp, such as in the moment where there's significant declines through various restoration mechanisms, which also involves working with academics at various institutions and other entities as well. And so you'll have to forgive me because I am a very stupid person and I don't know much about our oceans, unlike <laughs> unlike you and Jen knows quite a lot about the Bay. What is kelp? What, what are we talking about here? What, what kind of a, a plant is this? Yeah, so kelp, I mean, people do refer to it quite commonly as a plant because it's easy to do that, but it's in fact marine brown alga. Ah, um, see, see this, is, this is why it's important to ask. I had no yeah. idea. All right. Technically, it is not a plant, of course, but people refer to it that way just because it's an easy way to sort of encapsulate individuals and talk about them. But it is a marine brown alga. And giant kelp is a perennial brown alga, extremely fast growing. And bull kelp's also very fast growing, but that is an, an annual species. For those of you who don't know, so when I was in high school or so, there were three kingdoms in, in the universe, the known universe, right? So this has changed quite a bit over the years, and that's why a lot of people don't really think about kelp as in a different kingdom than plants. If you're trying to make my my stupidity sound better, Jen, there's no excuse. It's just, <laughs> I'm a terrestrial guy. I, I'm not oceans. Well, now you know. Now I know. But alga is the singular form of algae. Just wanted to throw that in there because a lot of people probably have not heard the term, the, the word alga before. All right. So where, where is kelp found off of our coast? What, what is its kind of range, the species that you're talking about here? Yeah. So within California, kelp's found, those two species of canopy forming kelp are found throughout California. So bull kelp actually occurs from the Oregon border all the way down to Point Conception, although it's most abundant from about San Francisco north to the Oregon border. And then giant kelp occurs throughout the entire uh, California coastline. However, north of approximately San Francisco, it's, it's pretty rare and tends to occur in only small pockets here and there. So much of the north coast is dominated by bull kelp. And let's talk about its ecological importance and how it works within our, our coastal environments. Why, why does kelp matter? Yeah, so kelp as a, as a species, you know, is important for all sorts of other species, but it, it's really bull kelp and giant kelp, they really form 
they're a foundational species. They, they form ecosystems throughout our near shore coastline. And those ecosystems are just critically important for all sorts of services and, and benefits for humans as well. So they support all sorts of invertebrate species and all sorts of fish species. They're important for shoreline protection, for example. So they dampen longshore and onshore currents and waves, which prevents erosion or reduces erosion. A lot of those other species that they support ecologically and economically important. So abalone is, is, a, is a species that I think people will recognize as an important recreational invertebrate. And then juvenile rockfish and in some places juvenile salmon and smelts and smelts particularly are important for various indigenous communities historically. And so it's sort of difficult really to overstate how important kelp forest ecosystems are to, to us. Do we do we have any do we have any human uses for for kelp? Yeah, so there there is direct harvest of kelp as well. And so for various forms, historically the use of harvest of kelp for alginates, so as a thickener, was pretty common. There are food uses for kelp that are becoming increasingly common and certainly were important, again, for indigenous communities. And additionally, there are more modern applications. So biofuel is is becoming a potentially increasingly important use for the harvest of wild kelp, but it's also being developed into an aquaculture product as well that people are exploring to determine how effective bio kelp could be for biofuel and also for things like livestock feed. And some people are experimenting with growing it in Humboldt Bay right now, aren't they? That is correct. So HSU Marine Lab, led by Dr. Rafael Cuevas-Ribe, are starting to grow hum, um, bull kelp in Humboldt Bay, and they are also developing capacity up at the marine lab to try and culture bull kelp from spores for various restoration applications. They have this restoration component going, but also this blue economy component that they're, that they're working towards. And I should also note that the Nature Conservancy as well are also working with a small farm in Humboldt Bay for bull kelp with the idea of, again, exploring potential restorative aquaculture approaches with bull kelp. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I have read about its importance in carbon sequestration. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So there's quite a bit of experimentation going on right now, particularly with giant kelp in Southern California. But certainly kelp does sequester carbon and that carbon sequestration occurs, as you might imagine, but then particles of kelp, particularly smaller particles that are broken down in the near shore, are then transported offshore into deep sediments and then deposited and then locked away. And so there's a pretty important, interesting relationship there that you might not think about originally. So you have this near shore ecosystem that's exporting carbon to deep sediments in the deep ocean for storage. So absolutely, there's, there's that potential there as well. That is really fascinating. So my understanding is that here off the Humboldt coast, there are some large kelp beds off of Trinidad. Is that the main area for bull kelp forests around here? Yeah, so Humboldt County and Del Norte County has some significant patches of bull kelp associated with sections of Rocky Reef. And the one in Trinidad is an important section for bull kelp, the, the, the bed there that's in Trinidad but additionally, all the way up through towards Sumeg State Park, that whole rocky reef area through there supports bull kelp. And then around Crescent City, there are some good-sized bull kelp beds as well. 
And the nature of the Trinidad patch is pretty interesting because that was one of the only patches here on the North Coast that survived the extreme declines that we saw beginning in 2014. There weren't that many patches through Sonoma and Mendocino and Humboldt County and Del Norte counties that really survived that. But the Trinidad one was, and there's sort of various hypotheses for why a few of these remnant patches managed to get through the worst of the decline. And it ranges from the idea is that these patches might be able to self-defend, I suppose, against urchin incursions. And so the one in Trinidad Bay, for example, is a, is a kelp patch that exists in kind of a sandy expanse. And although ultimately urchins do cross sand, they don't like to, and it's a bit more difficult for them. So that's potentially the reason in Trinidad. In other areas, often these remnant patches were associated with the the mouths of rivers, so freshwater input. Bull kelp can tolerate moderately low salinities quite well, whereas urchins, for example, really cannot and don't like that. And so there's some there's some work being conducted right now to try and tease that out to see if that was one of the possible reasons that some of those patches survived. And I'm thinking of places like Noyo Harbor in Mendocino County and Albion Cove in Mendocino County, which have river mouths and also the big river as well. And then additionally, too, some kelp survived on high energy pinnacles. So rock pinnacles that get lashed pretty, pretty severely by wave energy urchins don't tend to like those spots as well. But all of those spots in general, compared to the expanse of kelp or or where the the natural expanse of kelp should be on the north coast, they're quite small, but they may have allowed some of those remnant patches to persist and maintain spore banks in those locations. So pretty important places. So that gets into why we invited you here on the radio today, and that is to talk about your work looking at the big decline in kelp and related species that started in 2014 or so. And then there was recently a, a, an article um, in Bay Nature that caught my attention that we'll post in the show notes, but that was kind of a surprising find that there's been some recovery here that scientists weren't weren't expecting. And so this is a happy, happy note. But so why don't you tell us more about the, the background of that big 2014 crash of the bull kelp? Yeah, absolutely. So as you noted, in 2014, there was that was the beginning of a very severe heat wave event. So between 2014 and 2015, you may recall the Pacific Blob, which was an anomalous heat event in the Pacific Ocean that effect, affected the north coast of California and much of the west coast. And then that was immediately followed in 2015 and 16 by a very strong El Nino. So there was a period of time there of elevated water temperatures and kelp essentially is a cold water species. It likes cold water to grow and it likes high nutrient availability. And so these warm water events really stressed kelp on the North Coast and and throughout the state, actually. And, you know, that caused declines in kelp through that warm water temperature and through lack of nutrient availability. So kelp started to deteriorate quite severely and decrease in abundance as a function of that warmer water. But there were also some ecological stresses that kind of piled on at the same time. And so that warm water event actually increased the recruitment of purple urchins on the North Coast. And yeah, by the North Coast here, I mean all the way from, let's say, Sonoma County up to, well, primarily Sonoma and Mendocino counties, but also including Humboldt County and to a lesser degree, Del Norte County. And so there was an increase in purple urchins, which of course a significant grazer on kelp. 
but at the same time, prior to the warm water event in 2013, sea star wasting disease was triggered along the West Coast and caused huge die-offs for multiple species of sea stars, including the sunflower sea star, which is an important predator of purple urchins on the North Coast. And in the absence of historic presence of sea otters was in fact the only real sea urchin predator on the north coast. So now you have the situation where kelp has declined, urchin numbers have increased, there's no natural top-down control of urchins from natural urchin predators, i.e. the sunflower sea star, and so urchin grazing on kelp is increasing. I should also note as well, there's an important element to this which sort of often goes unnoticed, which is Typically, urchins are well-behaved, good urchins in kelp forests. They typically like to hang out in cracks and crevices, and they're detritivores. So you can think about kelp forest raining down particles of kelp and parts of blades and parts of itself in the same way that leaf litter might fall from a normal forest. And it drifts to the floor, and it gets trapped in crevices, and urchins eat that in those crevices. And they mostly stay out of the way, and predators help to keep them there as well. But when they start to get hungry, when there's a decline in kelp, for example, or there's an increase in urchins and there's not enough food to go around, they switch their behaviors and they switch from this sedentary feeding behavior into a very active, voracious foraging behavior where they come out of the cracks and crevices and they march across the reef and and try and find as much food as they can. So that combination of factors, declining kelp, increasing urchins, no top-down control from urchin predators really resulted in a total almost decimation of bull kelp on the north coast. And in Sonoma and Mendocino counties, which account for most of the bull kelp on the north coast, there was a 95% decrease in kelp canopy area. So that is a significant decrease. And if, if you were to try and relate that to some terrestrial forest, it would be a pretty devastating sight to see. So that's sort of the story and the the decline in bull kelp has persisted from that beginning in 2014 all the way through to certainly 2020, with the lowest point being in 2019. And as generally this year, we've seen some increases in bull kelp abundance. However, it's really important to note that, that those increases are not even close to the, or, or well below the long-term average for bull kelp. So still some way to go, and it's a single year. And purple urchin densities are still exceedingly high across much of the North Coast, and are therefore likely still suppressing what you might consider a full kelp recovery. The Eco News Report, and we're talking about kelp with James Ray, the Kelp Restoration Coordinator for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. I I remember when the decline was really starting to pick up major news attention. There were stories about harvesting purple urchins for food and trying to develop a culinary market for these. Did did that ever take off? Did that ever yield kind of good results? Or was that just a flash in the pan? No, it's a great question. And I would say that it's still in process. And so traditionally, red sea urchins have been a very lucrative commercial fishing market on the North Coast, as well as in Southern California. Purple urchins, for various reasons, haven't been as marketable. And so purple urchins being a native species in this case, but one that's sort of out of balance with the system, if you're interested in having lots of kelp, that there's been lots of thought about how can you reduce those densities of 
of purple urchins. And so one of the ways to try and do that is to try and find markets for them to make that removal sustainable. And so one of the market ideas was that you would take urchins from urchin barrens, which essentially don't contain any uni at all and aren't marketable, you would take them to aquaculture facilities, essentially fatten them up um, and then be able to market them for the uni market. And so some folks are exploring with that and it's certainly a possibility and I think that there's potential there, but just the scalability of that is unlikely to solve the problem. And I don't want to say it's not a good idea. I think there's likely to be no single solution to this, but more like a mosaic of, of solutions all sort of contributing to moving us in the right direction. So this is potentially one of them, and several folks are exploring this now. So I think time will tell how effective it can be. What about the sea star population? Are they coming back as well, or what's become of the wasting disease? Yes, that's a great question. So some species of sea stars that show lots of evidence of wasting have actually started to show signs of recovery. So I think maybe lots of the listeners are familiar with like purple sea stars that they see in the intertidal, and that's one of them. But the sunflower sea star has shown no recovery whatsoever and is currently functionally extinct in California. And there was a petition to list it in the, in the Federal Endangered Species Act on August 18th of this year, based on information generated to show that those declines occurred on a massive scale and no recovery has been seen. And they're the ones that eat the purple urchins. Yeah, they're the large, many-armed sea stars that you may have seen YouTube videos of them chasing around in time-lapse camera on reefs where sea urchins are getting out of their way because they are predators and sea urchins. But also, I think, you know, much of that escape response from sea urchins is based on olfactory cues. So they can smell those predators and they get out of their way. And so in addition to actually eating them, they also sort of disturb their their foraging behavior, which makes them less efficient foragers, most likely. And so having sea stars, sunflower sea stars on the reef is a help to kelp, whether whether they're eating tons of them or not. But there's early research being conducted right now that's showing that it may be at the very earliest stages in the life cycle of urchins that early stage sea stars, sunflower sea stars, might be the most effective at suppressing them. So that's that's interesting stuff. That's so interesting. I didn't know that the sea stars had that, that sort of scattering effect. And it, it reminds me of a talk I saw. Somebody was talking about how cattle grazing or other large herbivores like buffalo would have this natural sort of scattering behavior as predators would come and and they'd run off. So they wouldn't be concentrated in one area like they are today with fences and no large predators. And so they wouldn't do as much damage to the plant communities. So that actually reminds me about this story. So when I have read these news accounts about this really interesting and very complex ecosystem with all these different predators and prey items, this fascinating studies, two things come to mind. One is our interview with the author of a book about abalone and the sea otters and how the management of abalone has been a real series of of mistakes and overcorrections in part because the sea otters were removed from the system before a lot of modern times and his, history was documented but also 
the story that people love to tell about the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone and how they have brought back balance to the ecosystem. And now the Aspens are thriving because the wolves are controlling the elk population. And as a, as a biologist, I read these stories and I think, well, that's a nice story. But people love to hear stories and they love to have a happy ending and wrap it all up in a bow with a nice explanation about how nature is always in balance and always finds the balance. But as a scientist, you know that it's much more complicated. And this is one of those situations where there's a lot of news articles but it's a lot more complicated and often science takes years to really understand, well, what is the sea star wasting disease and where did it come from? Was it always here? Was it a response to the marine heat wave? So can you talk a little bit about just being a scientist and communicating this information to people in a way that's understandable, but perhaps actually more factual than these nice, neat stories people like to tell? Yeah, it's a it's a really good point, Jan. And you know, kelp ecosystems are complicated systems. And one of the issues we have as managers with these ecosystems is that they're they're naturally highly variable. So bull kelp, particularly, but also giant kelp, is is highly variable in space and time. So in any given year, you can have tons of bull kelp, and then the next year you have significantly less, and then it bounces back up the next year. And so that kind of variability makes it really difficult to understand when a kelp decline, for example, is a is a serious decline and when you may or may not need to intervene. And, and then if you decide you do need to intervene, wh- what kind of intervention tools do you have at your disposal? So right now, I would say we're really in that process of trying to figure out what constitutes a significant decline if we were to try and step in early with various interventions, and then what type of interventions might work. So that interaction is pretty complicated. But then on top of that, we're not just talking about kelp in isolation. We're talking about urchins and urchin dynamics, and we're talking about temperature and nutrient dynamics. And so, as you know, it's a pretty complicated system. And I, as a manager, am not a Bodega Marine Lab level researcher or or a University of Washington researcher and much of these the questions on the academic side about you know let's say for example how might you culture pycnopodia if you're interested in recovery in the long term these questions are all being they're very complicated to begin with but they're also in various different domains I guess the point I'm trying to make here is there's a lot because there's so many actors working on quite complicated systems, but also there's significant interest from various stakeholders and the public. There's lots of opportunity for (laughs) some misinformation and there's lots of different perspectives and trying to get our arms around that for a simple narrative is, is a difficult thing to do. But I think as you're pointing out, we might not have a simple narrative at this point and we're, and we're trying to work towards that. And so one of the one of the things we're hoping, one of the tools we're hoping to try and help us with that is within the next couple of years, we're we're working towards developing a statewide kelp restoration and management plan. And so that management plan is really an attempt to come up with sort of a comprehensive strategy for for managing kelp at the ecosystem level. 
And right now, like I said, we have all these actors working on these small components. But over the next two years, particularly, you know, some of the results from some of that work is going to come in. And we're hoping to funnel it into this management plan. And so as we start to do that, as we start to bring more people to the table, as we start to get more stakeholder involvement, I think that that, that narrative that you're talking about that's based on science and fact is going to start to galvanize a little bit more. Whereas right now, we are still ourselves, in some regards, feeling our way into what this all means. So that, that might not have been a very satisfying answer, but I feel like that's where we're at. <laughs> well, and it's it can be an unsatisfying answer, but I think the, the general population has gotten a real lesson in the, over the past year and a half with the pandemic as far as scientists learning as as they're going about an organism that was virtually unknown several years ago. And so, yes, scientists change what they think is most accurate based on new information all the time. And it can be frustrating. And I hear quite a bit, why do they keep changing their minds? And I, <laughs> I've tried explaining like, well, if they didn't change their minds based on new information, that would be like religion. <laughs> where people refuse to accept new information. This is the way it's been. This is the way it's always been. And we're not going to revise. Whereas the scientific method involves getting new information, repeating experiments and revising your hypothesis. And that's like one day, maybe you think that the, the coronavirus is highly transmissible on surfaces. Then people do experiments and realize it's not. So thankfully we learn. <laughs> As we go. But so I did want to ask you about water pollution. And since Baykeeper's work is often focused on water pollution and stormwater runoff in coastal environments is particularly an issue because of its lack of regulation and all the rainfall here. How does water pollution play into these various issues? Yes, it's a great question. And I would say that there's pretty clear links between water pollution, particularly high sedimentation and declines in localized kelp populations in Southern California, particularly. So with the massive urban areas that exist down there, sedimentation is definitely an issue for those kelp populations. I would say on the North Coast, given our lower population declines, I don't think, to my knowledge, there's any links right now between water pollution and declines in kelp on the North Coast. But that doesn't mean to say we obviously shouldn't be paying significant attention to our water quality because that is linked to several things, other things uh, of importance on the North Coast and elsewhere. But yeah, for sure, water quality issues in Southern California has definitely led to declines in kelp. And, and it's a, an important consideration for the, the water control boards down there. And I would go as far as saying there's various projects been put in place to, to try and reduce those impacts specifically for kelp and around mitigation associated with those impacts too. And then another issue, which is not that common, I don't suppose, but can happen is water quality as it pertains to increased water temperatures. So the San Ofre nuclear power plant down in Southern California was emitting as part of its normal processing large amounts of warm water that ultimately impacted kelp and, and caused the need for a large scale kelp mitigation project down there, which was the Song's kelp reef, basically, to, to replace impacted kelp as a function of that increased warm water temperature from the, from the nuclear power plant. So yeah, so sedimentation and increased water temperature, definite potential impacts from, for water quality. So the temperature is basically pollution. Yes. 
Well, thanks so much, James. This is really fascinating. I'm sure we could go for another half hour, but I really appreciate you coming to share all this information and, and we'll invite you back once we have some more findings to, to let people know about. Yeah, happy to talk about it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, James. All right. All right. This has been another episode of the Eco News Report. Join us again on this time and channel next week for more environmental news from the North Coast of California.